This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. A great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly. I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin. Hello and welcome to The Thin Place, the Film Geek Radio podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. This is episode number 27 for December 2012. Your hosts are Ken Moorfield, that's me, and Todd Truffin, that's me. And our topic for this episode is The Hobbit, Part 1, which I believe has the subtitle, An Unexpected Journey. Yes. Directed by Peter Jackson. This is not a spoiler-free discussion, so if you have not read the first six chapters of The Hobbit, go and read the first six chapters of The Hobbit, and then watch the movie, and then come back and listen to the podcast. But we're going to assume most anyone who's interested enough in the movie to listen to this podcast will have read the book or be familiar with it at some point. Or they might listen to us and just decide not to see the film. Oh, that's true. Um, well, that's a somewhat <laughs> ominous segue. But uh, yeah, traditionally, Todd, uh, one of our first questions is, why do this from a film geek radio perspective or from a thin place perspective but i think before we do that i i want to address the notion that i think we both had some pretty strong feelings as film as film on the film as film and so maybe we should address that first like you know what was your overall take on the film okay you know it was an interesting experience for me seeing this film it is no secret to anyone who knows me that I am not a fan of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings adaptation. And I really had very low expectations going into The Hobbit. Um, that being said, and setting aside for a moment just the, the kinds of questions and problems we always get into with a film adaptation of other source material, I really was kind of surprised at how certain technical aspects of filmmaking seemed to not be up to snuff. I guess that's a, nice, that's a long way of getting around to saying, I, I, I thought there were just certain ways in which the film just wasn't a good film. Yes, I, I would agree with that. I probably disliked The Lord of the Rings less than you did, but I still disliked them somewhat, and I don't have as much invested in the novel, so I've always tried to wean myself away a little bit from, like, I don't like this movie because it's not the perfect embodiment of right. something that I care about in in a particular way that I have that particular approach. I'm a little concerned with the word up to snuff from a technical standpoint because there were a number of technical choices that I found curious and didn't work for me. But I, I found those to be stylistic deficiencies or questionable choices, not necessarily lack of technical ability or something. I guess the first one that, that and the most obvious that I'm going to is this whole 48 frames per second or 40 frames per second or, or whatever it is right. that makes it look, I said more than once, like you're watching someone play Xbox for three hours. It's, it's got a very video quality uh, to it and that just seemed to me to be a very strange choice video has a more intimate feel a more personal feel and that exacerbated the film's inability in my mind to decide what it wanted to be like is this an epic and it's hard to do an epic on video Did was it a serial is it more of a you know, comedy, did they want it to be more intimate? Did they want it to be more grander? Or did they want to just have little bits and pieces from everything and not have... So, you know, I'm not quite sure that, like, say, that that technical aspect of it was it's not quite up to snuff as it, it well, doesn't seem yeah. to fit the movie. Right. You know, it seemed like a curious choice to me and one that didn't really work or pay off. Well, and I think some of that has to, and it's interesting. I, 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 we're responding to the same visual 
data. Yes. Um, perhaps a little differently. Um, I wasn't seeing it so much. I mean, when, when I heard you throughout the film saying it feels like I'm watching somebody play Xbox, I was zoning in more on the fact that it's just one big long chase scene or it, it felt like a video game. Yes. Well, um, the, there's narrative yeah. problems. And, and, and that part of it. Whereas to me, the look actually, in a sense, felt cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think this this higher frame rate um, that you know it's designed so that it's clearer and doesn't have as much blur as you get at the traditional frame rate, and it technically it does that. Right. Um, and maybe in some sense it's like going from standard def television to high def television where things get hyper crystal clear. I'm not sure that the filmmakers have figured out yet how to deal with that. Yes, I agree. Um, and, and so in that sense, yeah, I, I agree. It's a curious choice to, for, for a project of this size, scope, and impact to do something so experimental. Well, I, I think that the, the word cheap is right on as part of the video game mm-hmm. thing. I think in part because of the clear definition, it makes it look more like video. And rightly or wrongly, we associate video with home videos, with the shoulder cam, with news videos, and with television. And so it's not cheap, but it looks cheap because we, you know, we just subconsciously through saturation associate a film look with this looks like film, you know. And so there is that, I mean, in terms of the video game of just the visual, what it looks like. Sure. I agree with you in terms of the long chase scene. And I, I would also just add with that, the editing. You know, I'm not sure that they've quite figured out the 40 frames per second because it seemed to me to move just very quickly and very often between long establishing shot, which the 40 frames per second was good for, right? you know, and extreme close-up, which would give you the detail but nothing in between, and that I and and then I felt like I got whiplash of just like uh, Jackson has a very restless camera, and I think that absence of the two shot, you know, or the middle shot got distracting for me for mm. a while, and and I mean this is something that's very hubristic for me to say of someone like Peter Jackson who's been more successful than I ever will be. But I, I certainly walked away with the feeling more than once in the movie, like, he doesn't know where to point the camera. It's like, aside from the technical stuff, he can't decide what to point the camera at. And so it, it doesn't matter if, like, well, to use Orson Welles, for example, where you go into deep focus, it's like, I've got this new tool and this new video thing, but if I don't know how I want to use it, then all of a sudden the camera starts moving around a little bit like oh did you see that did you see that did you see that you know and I'm like yeah I saw all of it but what is your your stylistic vision of why do you want me to look at that right now you know and perhaps that you know to kind of translate from you know okay what does what effect does that have at least for me I found it very difficult to enter the film emotionally and Sure, some of that is story problems, which we can talk about. But I think, too, just the visual, that lack of knowing where to look, where to pay attention, what am I supposed to be looking at? I was spending so much energy just trying to interpret that information that it took me out of the story. Right. The the 40 frames per second, if I've got one recommendation for people who really like this material, it's... If you're going to see this movie, at least on a first time, try not to do it on the 40 frames per second. Because in my mind, that decision trumps every other artistic choice in the movie to Mm -hmm. the point where it so overwhelms that that it's hard to focus or think about anything else. And I really think another way that that contributes to the video game feel is I got the feeling like the higher definition or the sharper definition made it hard to deal with movement. Mm -hmm. And so there had this tendency to be like, in these action scenes, we're going to get long shots and distance shots that are going to establish the sets. 
And in the quieter scenes, we're going to just have people sitting without much movement and talking. But in a film that's the first six chapters <laughs> of the book, it feels stretched and elongated. And so there's this weird sort of like, we're going to have, you know, we're going to hurry up so that we can get to this place and sit around and talk. And then we're going to have a, a lot of re really frantic movement. And then we're going to sit around and talk. And th there was not a lot of rhythm to this film. Mm -hmm. and, and I think, you know, you had mentioned, aside from just this dialogue, why do people feel this deep-seated people? Why does Peter Jackson feel this deep-seated need to keep messing with Tolkien's structure, with his narrative structure? Right. Um, and I think part of that is not trusting the audience as much, that everything has to, you know, Tolkien's subtle or can be subtle in terms of narrative structure, and trust you to get important details. But I, I wonder if some of it's also not the technical thing, where it's like, okay, the visual medium that we have projected doesn't lend itself to the kinds of structure that I want to make, which is a leisurely move, movie, but one that keeps moving, it lends itself to starting and stopping, right. to either a chase or nothing. And, and it, that tends to create a very stopping, starting, herky-jerky movie that never gets a lot of rhythm narratively. And when it's three hours, that's a real problem because it just right. feels like, you know, I felt every one of the three, you know, three hours, even as much, if not more so than Cloud Atlas is three hours, you know. Okay. Uh, other things technically in terms of or about the movie or overall impressions about the movie before we segue to Thin Place Perspectives? Not really. I mean, it, I mean, it looks nice. It's a pretty picture. You know, certainly one of the things that Jackson, you know, brings back to Middle Earth is, you know, his art directors and, you know, his art department um, certainly make a nice looking place. Right. Um, I, I don't think there can be any complaints about that, really. Um, and which that, you know, to segue into other matters, just it, it makes me more frustrated. Okay. I, I was thinking about this, why this film from a thin place perspective, which is a long, elaborate question about there's not a lot of overt faith content, you right. know? Um, one of the reasons for me, quite frankly, is just because this is a film that is beloved by a lot, or a franchise, a franchise, a book, a source material that's beloved by a lot of Christians. Right. And so... You know, it's one that a lot of Christians want to talk about and will be interested in. I have a harder time judging from a content perspective how much I think they will be disappointed because, I mean, one of my, one of my statements that I said to you several times was it really feels to me like Peter Jackson likes or is endeared to this subject material, but I don't know that he understands it, right. you know, and, or at least he doesn't understand it in the same way that I understand it. <laughs> and therefore there's a lot of subtle changes or not so subtle changes that change the meaning of the narrative or make me feel like you're majoring on minors and minoring, <laughs> you, you know, on, on majors that it's like, do you even get what this, story is about, hence that makes me postulate that people, Christians, who love this film, love because they think it's about some of the same things that I think it's right. about, and therefore will sort of be similarly frustrated. And I'm trying to not make that sound snobbish, like, this is not the book, you got the wrong kind of button on Saruman's jacket. But I, you know, I'm not talking about that, I'm talking about like motivations for character major motivations for characters things that people do that in my mind don't radically change the narrative but radically change the meaning of the narrative and to give an example yeah <laughs> that probably is a good thank you first spoiler alert <laughs> we'll throw that out um you know one of the beloved scenes fun scenes um in the hobbit 
is very early in the book, um, after the big meeting at Bilbo's house and the, um, you know, the, the kind of the plan is laid out. He is invited to join the company. In the book, you know, he wakes up in the morning, everybody's gone, and he's feeling very relieved. He's, all oh, those, those dratted dwarves are gone. I can get back to smoking my pipe and... I dodged a bullet. <laughs> I dodged a bullet. At which point there's a loud knock on the door. It's Gandalf rushing him out the door. You're going to be late. You're going to be late. And totally kind of without his own agency, he finds himself running to meet the dwarves to go on this adventure. And there's a big thing about, you know, he, he's got nothing with him. No handkerchiefs, no clothes, nothing. He's just rushed out the door by Gandalf. So that's the book. In the film, we get this long, you know, he wakes up. That's nice. It's morning. He sees a contract laying on the table, and he makes the choice. He says, oh, no, I I do want to go on this journey. Mm -hmm. And it seems like a small thing. But it, but it really does get at, you know, what is his motivation for going on this journey? Right. You know, who is, at the beginning of this story, who is the agent? Who is the person making these choices? Is it Bilbo himself who's saying, yes, I am going to be a took and go on this adventure? Or is it the small man getting wrapped up and caught up in something bigger than himself? And the weird thing to piggyback on that example that the thing that frustrates me a lot about Jackson's franchise is that someone can look at a change like that and say oh okay that's a relatively small change it's not a major change in the narrative don't be so nitpicky but I will also turn that around and say but neither would it significantly alter the narrative to do it right so you need or to do it the way that it was in the book so you know to me, then, I'm looking at it and saying a lot of those changes that are, in my mind, the most strong or the most – are also the most needless. Exactly. Like, you know, why do we have to have him change that way? Is it at some point Peter Jackson, I'm saying half tongue-in-cheek, is like, well, the way Tolkien did it is fine, but this way it would be even better – or audiences aren't going to accept that or get that. Or you know, what's the point of that change? At what point in the script writing process or the editing process or in the actor decision did anyone ever say, you know, I think this would be improved or this would be better if instead of the way it's in the book, we do it this way. And, and, and I, don't I don't get know. it. No. I don't, you know, I mean, the one thing that I get is that the, 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 Strictly a theory. Right. Because if we're going to take the book and divide it up into three movies. Right. Then each movie kind of has to have a narrative arc. Mm-hmm. And so we have to impose an external kind of narrative arc on the first six changes. And thus it becomes, rather than one unified story, the first part of it's going to be about Bilbo and the development of his character from... You know, passive, his proving himself to Thorin, and yes, I really do belong in the company, right. and I'm going to save Thorin and, and these particular things. And that just seems to me to be like, because otherwise we're afraid, like if we cut off the first movie after the first six chapters, the people are just going to say, well, that's an arbitrary place to cut off the movie, which is true. So in order to keep it from being an arbitrary chance, the only thing I can think of is that maybe the decision that has to be protected is to break it up into three movies. And so therefore we've, we've got to, in some way, shape these into three stories or a three act story instead of the hobbit's really not a three act story it's 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 an episode so it's one story in a series of episodes well and i guess that's where i guess i would come back on that idea and say you don't have to make each i mean let's for the moment accept that we're going to make three movies right you know but everybody knows that it's one story broken up into three movies so you don't have to make each film its own self-contained arc. I mean, that's a choice. Now, we might, you know, people might disagree about that choice. 
mm-hmm. and say, but you, know, you don't have to. Yeah, have to is and the only reason I say have to is it goes back to trusting the audience and who is this for? Is it for the Tolkien lover or the person who knows the story or not? Because I just the first time I saw Fellowship of the Rings, I remember walking out of the theater and there was a there was a dad and his son and they were both very confused about like, well, is that it? Is that just over? I guess they walked across the mountain and dropped the ring in there. This is all so strange. And it I was rolling my eyes, but they seemed to, unless it was candid camera, they seemed to honestly not right. know there are going to be two other movies. You know, there are some sequels. They just walk out going like, that's it? That's the end of the movie? I'm, you know. But, you know, again, that then that becomes the question of it's like, what do you give up to join that one in a hundred person who doesn't know the story and might be confused or put off and at what cost to the people who are like well okay this was perfectly fine the way that it was you know and 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 that's you know that is a question you know on the marketing of the film Mm -hmm. and at what point does the marketing of the film impact the artistic choices or drive the creative process right you know um and you know i don't know i mean that's you know certainly there's already been a major artistic choice made by we're going to make this a multiple film story, even though seeing how certain scenes played out in terms of time, I could perhaps see two films, you know, this story being a two film thing. I don't know about three, but you know, certainly they, they've made this choice. So there are going to be impacts on how the story gets told. Um, and some of it's fine. Um, the, the 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 long prologue giving us all the history of the dwarves and all of that was makes a certain amount of sense and it looks nice. Um, this is a very inflammatory word for me, and I realize it when I say it. But it felt dumbed down to me, and I guess one of the reasons why, as a Tolkien, I'm not I'm not a Tolkien devotee the way some of my friends are, mm-hmm. but. I, I admire and respect the book a lot. And one of the things that I find irksome about all of Peter Jackson's treatments is it feels dumbed down. And one of the things that I love about Tolkien is that he's from that tradition of, no, I can write a, even a children's book right. you know, or a book for young adults. And that's not patronizing. That's not dumbed down. And I trust you enough as a young human being to recognize and respond to if I treat you in these big ideas. And I think there are a lot of Christians, I suspect too, who, you know, are used to that sermon tradition where everything's handed to them in a neat little sermon bow. This Mm -hmm. is the meaning of the story. You know, who, when they first found Tolkien, was like, wow, something that is you know, not condescending to me, not, you know, is leaving me something to do, a little bit of work or a little bit of thought or is a little bit of subtlety. And I, I, I've gone back more than once to the quote by St. Augustine that says, what is sought with more effort is received with more pleasure. Of that, there's nothing quite like, if I can bring in a, an example, of the Narnia books, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, the, there's nothing, the difference between like, I wonder why that lamppost was there. And wondering about it for five books and finding out five books <laughs> that, oh, I wasn't the only one who thought that, that, you know, is very different from, you know, the first time I see it, having that explanation given right. to me. And I think that Tolkien is that wonder of, I'm not going to force it down your throat. I'm going to be subtle. And one of the things about that is that then Tolkien was one of the first people I read that rewarded multiple readings, mm-hmm. you know, where you actually go back to it a second time or a third time or a fourth time. And you're like, oh, I know this story, but I never noticed that detail before. Or, oh, I picked up on that. And, you know, I missed it the first time. There's a richness of the detail that gets lost when you dumb it down and water it down. Um, now, one of the places for the film, mm-hmm. to be specific about that, is... We have to bring in Saruman and Eowyn from the other movies. So they're all at Rivendell. Gal- yeah, and Galadriel. And Gal- Galadriel. Yeah. I'm sorry, not Eowyn. Galadriel. We have to bring in Galadriel. 
and Saruman and have a little council of foreshadowing. And Saruman is the rationalist. It's like, oh, don't talk to me about Radagast the Brown. And practically projecting, I am a villain. I am going to turn to the dark side. And there's, to me, there's a much greater pleasure. Uh, well, first of all, there's a much greater surprise when Saruman finally turns, you know, of like, oh my gosh, I didn't see that coming. Right. You know, that's a very different effect than, yeah, I saw that coming through, you know, three books ago. And then a much greater pleasure when you revisit it and you see just the small signs of like, yeah, there is an arrogance there. There is a, mm-hmm. you know, but it's not just telegraphed and underlined and well, everything has to be telegraphed and yeah. underlined in a way of like, you're too dumb to see this on your own unless we spot shadow it. It's, you know, sometimes call that the Spielberg yeah. effect or the Spielberg, you know, unless I spot shadow it and bring it to your attention and say, see, see, that's a clue. That's significant. And I think that might be part of the difficulty that just anyone, not just Peter Jackson, would have had in making this film in that because we have already had the Lord of the Rings movies, it's hard, I'm going to guess, for the public, the non-Tolkien reading public, to say, oh, The Hobbit is not a prequel. You know, in, in the actual writing of things, Tolkien wrote The Hobbit, it was a self-contained story, and then... Many, many years later is when he started with Lord of the Rings. Um, we're getting the, you know, the, the films are coming to us in reverse order. And I think Jackson, you know, there's that need of how does this connect with the what we've already got. So we've got to bring these other characters back to, for, you know, because we can't somehow live without the franchise being connected. Right. Um, and so we're going to have to do this. And... I mean, the amount of time, you know, I mean, this, this film is almost three hours long. Right. The amount of time that was spent on establishing connections, both in the prologue and then in this, yeah, at Rivendell with this secret council, you know, the number of, of minutes spent doing nothing really other than saying, oh, look, this is a connection to Lord of the Rings. Here's um, Bilbo writing the story, you know. I mean, here's... we. You, it easily could you could have lost thirty to forty five minutes, and I, I had said earlier I'm not sure the movie knows what it wants to be in terms of action or adventure, but I also wasn't sure what it wanted to be in terms of prequel or its own story because I'm like okay if you're gonna do that and you're just gonna say okay it wasn't a prequel as written but we're gonna make it's a prequel as a movie because right. the movies are out there and that's what people want is a prequel in the movie. Well, then own that and make consistent choices around that. One of the things that I found fascinating is like, okay, you're going to go through all this trouble to make connections to Lord of the Rings. You're going to bring in Galadriel. You're going to bring mm-hmm. in, you know, Saruman. Well, then end the movie when he finds the ring because that's, I mean, it's not the huge part of the Hobbit narrative. Right. But... If you're going to frame The Hobbit as a prequel, then that is a real significant moment, you know? Right. And it ought to end when Bilbo finds it or when Bilbo runs out of the cave and Gollum is like baggins, thief, hates it. But then it's like we get another 20 minutes of the, you know, the orcs chasing them, them getting caught in the trees... The eagle, eagle chasing yeah. them. And the emotional climax is Thorin apologizing to Bilbo and saying, I now accept you. And, and I'm like, okay, so it's like we're going to bend this narrative to make it more of a prequel to Lord of the Rings. But then we're going to take the aspects of it that are most crucial and central to the Lord of the Rings. And they're not... The Well, this is where we get into, you know, Peter Jackson not understanding at least the heart of the material. I mean, it, to me, it almost seems like he doesn't understand a cliffhanger. You know, if you're going to make a series of films, you know, to have that cliffhanger, in, you know, with Baggin, you know, I hates it forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's your, gives you a wonderful sort of trajectory into the next film. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's a great little cliffhanger. But no, we're gonna go on and for and speaking of Gollum, since we are talking about Gollum and finding the ring, yes, and I'll talk about those sort of changes that I'm like yeah. are pointless. There's a riddle contest, yes, in the book, yes, and Bilbo asks Gollum a riddle, and the answer to the riddle is teeth, yes, and. I don't remember exactly. I haven't looked it up in the podcast, so I may have to do a mea culpa. But my memory in the book is that Gollum's response is teeth, but we has only six. And in the movie, it's like teeth, and we have only nine. And I'm just like, this is such a classic example of a meaningless, pointless change. It's like someone did art design of... <laughs> Gollum three movies ago in Lord of the Rings or whatnot and says... Well, the nine teeth equal to the... Like, if he says six, someone's going to go back, you know, and, you know, someone's either going to be like George Lucas and we have to retrofit and fix Jabba the Hutt or, you know, whatever. We've got to go back in the movies and digitally alter it so he only has six teeth. Or, well, we've already art designed him with nine teeth, so it's easier to change the text of the story than it is to change our art design. And, and I was just like, yeah, that to me was just, it, it's a pointless, meaningless detail that I, I can hear some people saying it doesn't change the meaning of the story. But to me, it was indicative of a much larger problem of the attitude of the artist towards his material, mm-hmm. which is, let me. Instead of putting first thing first, let me think about why this story is beloved and protect that and change that. I'm just going to let me do some cool pictures and then, you know, I'll protect that. And it's, it felt like the tail wagging the dog to me. Now, to perhaps leaven a little bit yeah. our disdain for this... <laughs> There was an artistic choice made in the Gollum in the in the Riddle game that I did think was actually did capture the character of Gollum and was consistent with what we know of Gollum from the text, and and it, and it was definitely an, an acting choice or a, a writing choice um, of of really playing with the dual nature of Gollum, um, and where he's talking to himself. And there's the dark golem and the and the nicer golem, and it, that is certainly a a quality of golem that gets developed in the text of Lord of the Rings very deeply. Um, to bring that then into like the riddle contest, I, I thought it was a good choice. Yeah, uh, and, and I thought it was one of those areas where there actually was some carryover from some of the film, you know, the Lord of the Rings film development that was brought in that was actually a good choice which then made me even more frustrated because i was like look you can do it right um the the riddle contest with Gollum or the encounter with Gollum had the change that that i just there was the one point in the movie that was the only one hate is a strong word but that I can, you know, unabashedly say I hated. And that is, the film shows Bilbo finding the ring by, he wakes up in the mine and lost and separated from the dwarf. And he sees Gollum fighting one of the goblins. And in thrashing about, he sees Gollum lose the ring. Right. He goes and picks it up. And I'm pretty sure in the book, he just finds it before right. he ever runs totally into Totally random, it. yes, absolutely. Now, I was trying to think about, like, why that bothered me so much out of all of the particular thing, you know, because I'm like, it did. I'm like, that is it just intuitively or instinctively. Mm-hmm. I said, that's wrong, you, you know, that's so, and that's wrong on a major level. But I, I had to really think about it. And one of the things that I think about, I'll float this idea to you, is that there's not a lot of institutional religion in The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, but what is there is implied through talk about fate yes. and destiny. And Gandalf even says very importantly that there is this sense of 
Bilbo was meant to find the ring. Yes. You know, that there was some sort of agency that perhaps guided his hand to it. Uh, you know, and to me, that's a very, you know, I guess you could say, well, that guided him to the moment where he saw Gollum lose it. But even then, that, that totally reframes the whole question of whether he is a thief and, you know, whether or not he knows that it's Gollum's and takes it or whether he just finds it. And whether then he was meant to steal it or pocket it, you know, well, this, versus he was meant to... Your, your, your reaction there, I think, goes all the way back to that first example that I talked about with the film of Bilbo getting rushed out of the door of who's in charge. You know, is Bilbo the active agent making all of these choices mm-hmm. or is there some other force... And, and I, you're absolutely right, Tolkien, in the text, more than once, there's that idea of, you know, Bilbo was meant to do this. It was meant, there, there mm-hmm. is some active, and, and it's even greater than Gandalf and the Council. Right. It's outside of the, the powers that are saying, there, you know, there was a force moving events towards the various ends. And... These small changes are all about agency. And, you know, if, if Bilbo sees the ring, makes the choice, I'm going to take it. Yeah, he is a thief. And, and a burglar. And, you know, that's not... And, and that doesn't quite satisfy me in because I'm, I'm hearing us talk about that and saying, okay, so they're just kind of hung up in a Calvinistic way about he stole it versus he found it. And there's part of that, but for me, it also there's a more subtle point, which is Gandalf, particularly in this book, he doesn't use the language of theism. He doesn't talk no. about God a lot, but he uses the language of providence. Things were meant to happen. Right. There is something that is meant to right. happen. There is something that is guiding that. And that is this inferential lens towards at least the possibility of speculating about some kind of higher power or force that's there. And that's, you know, the Gandalf in the book is much more of, he's a little fuzzy about that, but he's using that. And there's a place in the movie where, you know, someone asks him, I think it's Thorin or one of the doors, why the halfling? Mm Mm-hmm. And Gandalf says, I don't know. And that's very true to the Gandalf in the book, where Gandalf will say, I have a sense of things. I have a sense that this is meant to happen. But, you know, I can't always articulate it rationally. And that's that part of Gandalf who is open to supernatural influence, who is Mm -hmm. open to supernatural forces. And in the book, it becomes much more of like, Gandalf is just like, he says, I don't know. And then he immediately says, well, I think it's because I don't despise the little things and I don't and and it's all the things that proved to be true three books later on where it was like right. but there weren't there in the book at that time it was just I have an instinct you, you know and I trusted my instinct and the instinct was proven to be right and trusting that instinct then raised the questions of was it just an instinct was I just lucky or was there something that was informing my instinct and whispering to my heart and that just gets totally lost in well and the other thing that gets lost is the dark side of this you know, you're what where you're at is all of the kind of the light side right. that there is a force moving to you know restore middle earth but in the books, and even in The Hobbit, there is also a sense that the ring itself has a will. And that it, in its evil will, it moves from person to person as it will to accomplish its own goals. And there is much made of this idea that, you know, the, the ring moved on from Gollum. Before it found Bilbo. Before it found Bilbo, that it, it had, you know, he had lost it or it had fallen off. And, you know, it was looking for somebody. That's a great point. Because so, then, if Bilbo just comes along, it comes across as more opportunistic. Like, I'm thinking of our podcast on The Exorcist. Right. You know, it's not like, okay, I have this greater design. 
or whatnot. It's you just happen to be there, and so I'm going to hop from person to person as opposed to, no, I have a reason why I picked this person, and I have a reason why I left that person, yeah. you know? And, and and so, you know, it's not just the theism of, you know, God. It's also the devil is the, the darkness has a, a will, and, and you know, this... I was afraid that the film was going to try to was turn a children's story into an epic, but where where it actually is an epic is in these forces of good and evil, and it's not and it's bigger than just the individual characters. It's it's a much larger force of good and evil battling it out. Well, you know, and there are places where, in retrospect, I might even be persuaded to say the Hobbit can be an epic. But we had had a conversation in the car where I'm. I'm getting more and more convinced that Peter Jackson as an artist is all about the surfaces. And one of the things that that Tolkien, to me, is brilliant at, you know, and totally captures the essence of life at, is that none of us, even when we're in an epic, see ourselves in an epic, we see our small part of it. Right. We see our surface level part of it. And there is that sense in which I I feel like Peter Jackson sees surfaces. Oh, the rock giants will throw each other. That, But part of the thing that's so brilliant to me about Tolkien's narrative is that he never intentionally and self-consciously moves below the surface, but he lets those resonances and those ripples and those roots that go below the surface accrue gradually through the accumulation of the narrative rather than just say, I'm going to give you a 10-page prologue that will go back a thousand years (laughs) to make you feel as though what's important about this particular encounter because that's true in life right sometimes the most important things that are happening in life sometimes we we're aware of it like when we ask someone to marry us we're like okay this is an important decision that's going to change my life but sometimes we don't you know sometimes we don't until years later or months later say that's important. And sometimes we don't know that as readers. Right. And there's a joy of discovering that as readers rather than having everything spoon-fed to you at the moment of contact in the surface and saying, okay, Bilbo doesn't realize that this is significant, but you must realize that this is significant. And Which is no, no – I think it's not no better shown than when they're – they're done with the trolls, and they've got the. They're going through the troll horde, and Bilbo is given his sword. And rather than just say, "Okay, here's your sword. You're going to need this. Whatever." Gandalf, then you know, we get the big, huge close up, and the very, you know, it's very important not just who you kill, but who you don't kill. I mean, yes, that was horrible, and, and it's like, you know, it totally robs Bilbo of. The idea that he has his own moral center so that when he is given the opportunity to kill Gollum and he chooses not to. It becomes I'm listening to Gandalf's advice rather than I made my own moral decision. Exactly. And sure, in Lord of the Rings, in the books, Gandalf looks back on that choice of Bilbo's. And and he makes a big deal out of point, you know, that Bilbo's choice is going to have deep repercussions for the story. But that's a person looking back on the choice. Well, and if I recall correctly, yeah, another thing that's wrong about making that instructional, even if it is looking ahead to some things that Gandalf said in Lord of the Rings and backfitting them, is that a lot of times my recollection of Gandalf talking about his own decision to spare Gollum Mm -hmm was that it had some ambivalence. Like, I'm not sure that was the right thing exactly. to do. Exactly. I, you know, I'm not sure that Bilbo did the right thing, but then when I had time to do it, it was hard for me, and so I'm going to cut Bilbo some slack, but I'm still not Maybe it would have been better to kill him, but I just couldn't really do it. And that's very different from, like, you know, okay, when the time comes, remember this advice. Or, but I think... 
Gandalf's exact words in Lord of the Rings are for good or ill. Yes. That Gollum has some part to play for good or ill, he doesn't know. And that goes back to the whole theism thing of, of you know, why think some Christians, or at least this Christian, me, likes Lord of the Rings, is that Gandalf's trust is in the process and in other people, not just always in himself and in his right. judgment and in, you know, well, this is what you should do because this is what I would do. That's what blinds him a little bit to Saruman's arrogance is because if anything, Gandalf errs a little bit on the side of like, I'm distrustful of my own inclination to be directive and do things like I am and a little bit more trustful of if I allow people the freedom to make their own moral agency that they will make the choices, that they will make their own choices, and I trust that sometimes more than I trust myself. Right. You know, now granted, Gandalf grows as he goes from Gandalf the Grey to Gandalf the White and has a little right. bit more experience. He's capable of being more definitive and saying, no, I had some experience and now I'm really confident. But he hasn't always, you know, it's not like... He grows. I, yeah, it's not like I drop out of the tomb from day one having this sort of... Gandalf is portrayed in this movie as as this sort of precocious, perfect in 2020 hindsight. You know, that he's perfect. Mm -hmm. You know, he's not wise. He's perfect. And that's that's a subtle difference, but it's a huge difference. And, and it's one to the impoverishment of part of what makes the book great, even if it right. doesn't keep the story from being good, you know. Well, so much of what we see, and again, I think one of the things that makes Tolkien great is that he has many, many dynamic characters that are growing and changing. It's not just the protagonist. It's, you know, it, you know, Gandalf, he is growing. We see Aragorn grow and change, you know, through the narrative. You know, it's not just Frodo or Bilbo. Mm -hmm. uh, Sam Wise in The Lord of the Rings, we see him flower and develop. Um, you know, all, there's all of these characters that are changing. Well, and the word grow to me is important, too, because there's a subtle but important difference between growing and changing. That is true. You know, Thorin is, Bilbo has no place and he just wants to go back to his bed or whatever, and then he changes his mind. Mm -hmm. But that's just like, okay, so that's a resolution, but there's, there's not as much sense of, oh, I'm really growing, because... To me, that different one of the differences between growing and changing is growing comes from a re-examination, a realization, not just an admission that I might have been wrong right. and, and a change, but you know, a really thinking about how and why I was wrong and how I cannot then just change my mind about this, but change my behavior so that I avoid and being, this, change my process so I avoid being wrong. And in this Again. particular case, you know, in, in the film, and, and here's, you know, one of the major shifts in, you know, major changes to the story that Bilbo's acceptance by Thorin at the end of the film, it's, I think you're exactly right. It's, it's based on Thorin changing his mind because Bilbo does things that he values, that right. Thorin values. Right. It, there is no growth. I hadn't seen that yet, you know, you know but now I have. So. You know, he, he saved me. He did warrior deeds. Um, he it has expressed a desire for my welfare. And so, oh, okay. So he's not just, he's not the selfish person I thought. He's he's actually doing things for me. Right. It's it's not a growth in Thorin as a person, or as opposed to, or a learning to value some things that I didn't value before. You still value the exact same things. That Todd, that's a great point because I just it seems to me like, to use religious language, one of the cardinal sins or the poisoning sin in in Lord of the Rings, and you know in the Tolkien universe, which may be why Christians like it so much, you know, particularly as it pertains to Gandalf and Saruman, mm -hmm. but but all the way down the line is is arrogance. Mm -hmm. Is that arrogance of do not tempt me, you know, you know, Gandalf is afraid of the ring. Right. Because not because he doesn't think that he has more power than Bilbo, 
but because he knows that he does have more power than Bilbo, and I could learn to be arrogant about that, and that's what, you know, Saruman does, is, you know, I can take it, I can handle it, you know. I'm not open to re-examining the things that I've despised or overlooked, and and I think that that exchange between Thorin and Bilbo, it's not about my saying, hey, maybe I need to rethink what some of my values and attitudes are. It's just like, well, you showed me something there that I haven't seen before. And and that's a change, but it's it's not really a growth in terms of learning how to be less arrogant, more humble, more tolerant or more accepting learning how to value what other people have that you don't and not just value your own gifts right. and I, there's something that's again it's not the language of christianity in tolkien but there's something to me that's very christian about that or that's very consistent with christianity mm-hmm. that it's about learning you know right saint paul says the hand is not a foot but the hand doesn't despise the foot and right. so because you're not a foot you're not as good as me. And that's harder for some people. That That's harder for some hands right. or some feet than others to sort of say, no, everyone should be a foot. I want her to be 30 foot, you know. Yeah. And I, and I think, yeah, that, that is right. Uh, Thorin, he embraces Bilbo because Bilbo becomes a foot. Um, not because Bilbo has shown that, wow, that pain. Or a hand that can wield a sword. That can wield a sword instead of saying, you know, yeah, his, he's a great nose. Um you know, it's not that at all. And maybe I will need, you know, and, and you know, Gandalf's thing, it seems to me more in the the book about maybe you will need a nose at this point. Right now you despise noses, but trust me, sometime along in this long journey, you're going to be happy to have a nose exactly. when, you know. <laughs> so. All right. Well, it, I, I think that helps us get at some of the things that are not just us and our quirky responses to the book but or to the film, but also some spiritual-minded thoughts for those people who want thin-paced discussions on there. Anything else you want to add to that? I think that's... I think we've said enough. (laughs) All right. So, uh, thank you, Todd, and thank you, everyone, for listening. If you got comments about this episode, please come by the website, www.filmgeekradio.com, and and leave us a note or a suggestion from some other movie you'd like to hear us uh, discuss. You can also follow me, Ken, including my 10-year review of The Fellowship of the Rings at the number one morefilmblog.com or you can always follow me on Twitter at twitter.com backslash Ken Morefield. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!